You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. And this is what I would like to look at with you today. This is staggering. Uh, this is Isaiah 9-6. God told us how this light would come into the world. Uh, we looked at this last week. Uh, read it with me again. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. This is mind-boggling to ponder uh, that this mighty God, this everlasting Father is going to come to us. And how is he going to come? Well, he's going to be born as a child. And we're like, what the heck? The Messiah the Jews had been waiting for, they thought he was just going to appear. He was just going to show up one day in divine glory. And now Isaiah tells him, 700 years before Jesus comes, when he comes, he's going to come as a baby. He's going to be born. The holy God, a baby. To the Jew, this would be shocking. To the Jew, this would actually be on the edge of blasphemy. That the almighty God would be a baby, a child. Absolutely crazy. And I want you to think about this. If the story were fake, this is not how we would write it. If the story was man-made, this is not how we would write it. This is not what we would expect. We would expect it to say, the Messiah, God is going to come, and he's going to come in radiant glory with an entire host of angels. And when he comes, his glory will be so bright that everyone who sees his glory will fall on their face and worship him. And if they don't, they will be struck dead. That's what we would expect it to say. That's what it would say if it was written by man. And by the way, that is exactly what the Bible says will happen at Jesus' second coming. You can read Revelation 19 on your own. We're not going to cover it this morning, but he's coming in that kind of glory and radiant power. Why? Because he's coming to judge the earth. And he's coming with incredible power when he comes. But the Bible foretold the Messiah's first coming as a baby. And you say, what in the world? Well, God is showing us a lot from this passage in Isaiah 9, 6 here. God is showing us uh, that when he comes the second time, he's coming to judge the world. Hence, he comes in radiant power. But when he comes the first time, he's coming to save and to redeem mankind. To save us from sin, from death, and from eternal judgment. And to accomplish this, God said, he, God, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, would come to us as a baby. And you think, seriously? I mean, what a crazy story. And the world looks at that and goes, I don't know about that. Uh, and so I want to look at some things with you. And here's the question. Why did God come to us as a baby? Why? That is bizarre. And let's say we believe it for a moment, that God, this was really God. God became a baby in a manger, had to wear diapers. The creator of the universe had to wear diapers. Are you kidding me? If Jesus is God, why didn't he just come in radiant glory and issue a divine pardon absolving us of sin? 
Instead of uh, coming as a baby, he could have said, I am the savior of the world, and here I am in radiant glory, and if you believe in me, I will absolve you of all your sin. I will pardon you of all your sin. God coming as a baby seems insane. And it seems insane, especially to unbelievers who don't understand the depth of God's plan of salvation. In the strictest sense, I want you to know God cannot just pardon sin. It's not possible. God cannot just pardon sin because he's just. And a just judge cannot just pardon a murderer. If a just judge pardons a murderer, he might be a nice judge. He might be a loving judge. He might be a merciful judge. But what is he not if he just pardons a murderer? A just judge. A just judge can't just pardon Hunter Biden. You can't do that and be a just judge. You can do that and be nice, but you can't do that and be a just judge. And so here's the interesting thing to ponder. Uh, Many people think that God can do anything. But the truth is, there's a lot of things that God cannot do. Yes, God is, is, is omnipotent. He has all power. He can speak and a universe is formed. So what do you mean there's something he can't do? Is there a rock so big he can't lift it? No, no. Uh, he, can't, he can't lie. He can't be unjust. He can't be corrupted. He is holy. And it is impossible for him to be corrupted. And so God cannot be unjust. God is always just. uh, And and, uh, it never changes. So here's what we have to grapple with. God is merciful. God is kind. God is long-suffering. God is patient. All these attributes, I could run on and on about his uh, kindness and his mercy, uh, that we love those attributes of God. But I want you to realize something. These attributes are always who he is. God is not sometimes merciful and sometimes kind and then sometimes just. He is always just and he is always merciful. And his justice will not triumph his mercy, and his mercy will not triumph his justice. And so we begin to see that we have this problem. Uh, How can God, uh, he can't just pardon sin and be a just God. And so we hold on to that. We think about that. But by the way, these are called God's immutable attributes, or the the, uh, theological term. His immutable attributes. Immutable means what? Unchangeable attributes. And the early church, the the church with the, the apostles, they clearly understood God's immutable attributes. Uh, there are several verses I could use to show this to you. Well, I'll pick one. It's in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, take a look at this, verse 11. Let me hear you read this. As Before we read it, this was a creed in the early church. There weren't printing presses. And so one of the ways they would, re- they would memorize theology is by having poems or creeds that they would recite. This was one of them. So this is a bit of poetry, if you will. Uh, and let's read it together. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Now, this was a poem, a creed, sung by the early church, and it has couplets in it. Uh, There's two couplets of, if we died with him, 
I'll say the first part. You say the second part. If we died with him. Oh, that sounds good, doesn't it? And so we realize when we come to Jesus, we have to die to our flesh. We have to die to our will. We have to say your will above my will, Lord. I know my way is not right. I know your way is right. Uh, And so we looked at that last week. Jesus said, whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But whoever this stone falls on will be crushed to powder, right? You have a choice, right? Uh, And uh, if you die to to yourself, Will, then you're going to live with him. Uh, I'll read the first part. You do the second. If we endure, we'll reign with him. What does that mean? Well, we're going to live for eternity, and we're going to be given incredible rewards to rule and to reign over the universes to come for all of uh, eternity. Amazing. If we endure, endure what? Well, we endure the denial of our flesh. We endure the persecution of the world. We endure that when we stand up and we say, well, we say marriage is between a man and a woman, uh, and we endure the persecution that comes from making statements about absolute truth that God made, right? Uh, If we say Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one can come to the Father but by him, we are going to endure some hardship from that. And here's what Jesus says. If you endure, you're going to what? You're going to be rewarded. You're going to reign. I'm going to pour more into you. You're going to be for all eternity. Now, on the flip side, if we deny him, he'll deny us. No, I don't need Jesus as my Savior. Okay, I won't force you. Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my Father in heaven. Why? Because he's a just God. And if you don't want his plan of salvation, then you're stuck without a plan of salvation. There's only one plan of salvation. And now he says, if we're faithless, he remains faithful. And many Christians today think, oh, well, even if I'm faithless, everything's fine. And everything's not fine. This second couplet of these two things are God's judgment. If you are faithless, you don't walk with Jesus. You don't uh, have a relationship with Jesus. He's not the Lord of your life. He remains faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. He will bring judgment upon you because he cannot deny himself. In other words, he can't just let everybody go to heaven just because he's a nice God. He can't deny himself his just nature. Do you understand? So God can't do everything. He can't lie and he can't rob himself of his just person, his just nature. And therefore, God cannot just pardon sin. And God couldn't just appear and say, "Uh, here's Jesus, the Savior of the world. Believe in me and your sins are pardoned. He could not do that because it would be unjust. And so now we have to look at why did God become a baby? Uh, Well, it has to do with because God can't be unjust. Uh, God is always just. And this fact was understood by the Jews. It was why the Jews had to offer so many sacrifices continually, these animal sacrifices, these blood sacrifices. Uh, They were uh, given to them by God, this instruction by God for a purpose. And the theological term, uh, I'm going to ask you to say it with me, so, so listen, the theological term is penal substitutionary atonement. Say that with me. Penal, what does that mean? Having to do with a legal system. We have a penal code, right? Uh, There's a penalty that goes along for violating this law. Penal, we know what that means. Substitutionary, what does that mean? Taking place instead instead of this, it's this. It's a substitute. Atonement, what does that mean? Doesn't mean forgiveness. It means covering, uh, atoning for the sin, a covering of the sin. 
penal substitutionary atonement. And that was given to the Jews right at the beginning. That was given to Adam and Eve right in the beginning. From the beginning of time in the Garden of Eden, this penal substitutionary atonement was put in place. God had told Adam and Eve, in the day that you sin against me, you will die. That was the penal code. Now they sinned against him. And God did not want to kill them. And so God said, they made fig fig leaves as coverings for themselves. And God came looking for them. And they hid because their covering was inadequate. And God said, where are you? And that dialogue goes on and God says, that's an inadequate covering. And he clothed them with animal skins. And for the first time, there was a penal substitutionary atonement. They confessed their sins on that animal, and that animal died in their place, and they were clothed with the skins of the animal. And all through Scripture, the Jews would practice these animal sacrifices. Uh, This is why the Jews had to continually offer animal sacrifices for their sins, one after another after another. If you would have come to church today in that Old Testament time, here's what would have happened. You would have brought with you a perfect lamb as your penal substitutionary atonement. It would have cost you something. It had to be a perfect lamb without blemish. And you would have come in and stood before the priest and you would have said, I've sinned, I've messed up, I've blown, I've sinned against God. And here is my penal substitutionary atonement. And then you would lay your hands on that animal's head and you would confess your sins, symbolically transferring them from you to that perfect spotless lamb. And then the priest would hand you a knife and you would take that knife And you would slit the lamb's throat. And you would see that lamb squeal and bleed out in pain and in agony. And you would realize, that's what I deserved, judgment. A high price for my sin. And then that lamb would be put on the altar. And you would have fellowship with God. Uh, The reason the Jews had these animal sacrifices, the reason that uh, Adam and Eve had to do an animal sacrifice is because God cannot just pardon sin. He needed a vehicle to pardon sin so that he could be a just God. And that's why Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. I am a just God, and there has to be a penal substitutionary atonement for your sin. And for without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And this practice, as I mentioned, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and it continued on for generations and generations and generations. And here's the crazy thing about all of that. The crazy thing is all of these animal sacrifices, all of these blood sacrifices... They were just symbolic. In other words, that's why the word atonement was used. They weren't cleansed of their sin. They were just covered, temporarily covered. It was an atonement. Why? Because they were just symbolic. They didn't cleanse anyone of sin. We have a symbolism today that we do as well. It's called communion. And every Sunday on the first Sunday of the month, we gather together and we partake communion. And you take the bread and the wine. And the world would look at that and they go, look at those crazy Christians. There's hundreds of them in there and they're all drinking that bread and that wine. Do they think that's going to cleanse them of sin? And the answer is no. That bread and the wine is just what? Symbolic. Of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And those animal sacrifices, guess what they were? Symbolic. Communion looks back to what Jesus did, 
animal sacrifices looked forward to what Jesus would do. But it was all symbolic. And Hebrews makes that very clear. Here's what it says. It is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to cleanse men of sins. Uh, let me hear you read that verse. I want to hear it from your lips. Go ahead. Interesting. Uh, God could no more let a sinner go free by animal sacrifice any more than a judge could let a, a murderer go free by sending his poodle to prison. Think about it. Mr. Smith, you've been charged guilty. Uh, you've been uh, uh, found guilty of first-degree murder. I hereby sentence Fluffy to life in prison. You would look at that and you go, that's crazy. That is not a just judge. That's an insane judge. It's not possible that your dog Fluffy could pay the penalty of your sin. And God says, you're right. It's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could cleanse man of sin. Very interesting, by the way, uh, for you Bible scholars, let me talk to you just for a moment you will realize, you will remember something very interesting about the tabernacle, something very interesting about the temple. Oh, there was the holy place where the lampstand was, where the table of showbread was here on the right, the lampstand over here on the left, the veil in the front, and behind the veil was the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And a big, thick, 18-inch curtain separating the holy place from the holy of holies because no one could go in there. But one thing is curiously missing from this temple, from this tabernacle. There are no chairs. Not one chair. This is the place that represented the presence of God. You could dwell in God's presence. Problem? Nobody could dwell in there. There was not one chair for the priest or anybody to sit on. Interesting. The moment that the priest offered a sacrifice for sin, guess what he would do? He'd go wash his hands in the laver and go do what? Offer another sacrifice for sin. And he did it from morning to night. Josephus, the historian, would tell us that on Passover, when all the Jews were required to come to Jerusalem for this feast, that the blood of the lambs would be so many that it would run down from the Temple Mount, down all the way like a river into the Kadron Valley, and it would turn the Kadron Valley red with Passover blood. And so he, the priest, what would he do? He'd offer a sacrifice for sin, and then you didn't get to go sit in the temple. Then you had to wash your hands and go do it again and continue over and over and over and over. Wow. Something very interesting. This is not the case with Jesus. Exactly the opposite, as a matter of fact. Look at this remarkable verse, Hebrews 10.4 again on your screens. It read with me. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Sanctified? Set apart unto God. By one offering his own life, he sat down at the right hand of God, not in the tabernacle that was only a model or a copy, but he went and sat at the right hand of the real tabernacle in heaven, the real temple in heaven, and he sat down in a chair. There were no chairs in the human tabernacle because no one was cleansed of sin and no one could come and sit in fellowship with God. Wow. Just amazing. 
when the biblical priest made a sin offering, uh, they brought no one into the temple, no one into the tabernacle. They just went back and made more sacrifices. So interesting. God would be uh, unjust, or let me say it this way. God would not be just if he just pardoned sin. And so God became a man to take the punishment of man's sin upon himself. Staggering to consider. And I want you to think about this. How does this work? How is God just in becoming a man? I can see how he was unjust. How wouldn't it be just for God to let an animal sacrifice cover my sin? Any more than a judge can't let a poodle do life in prison for my murder, right? Uh, so that makes sense. God would be unjust. But how is God just in allowing Jesus to take the punishment of our sin? Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say that you are a professor at a university, and you happen to be my professor. And my whole term paper, my whole uh, uh, Doctorate degree is on my, my thesis, my, my paper. And I didn't do it. My doctorate is now writing on the line. I didn't do it. I didn't write my book. Now, I have a good friend. His name is Bob. And Bob's incredibly smart. And while I was out surfing every day, Bob wrote a doctorate. And he's so smart, he wrote two, and he said, I'm not using this one. Dave, I tell you what, I tell Bob, Bob, I'm in trouble, man. I'm in big trouble. And he said, well, here, you can have my doctorate. Put your name on it and turn it in. And so I go, man, you would do that for me? He goes, yeah, I'll do that for you. I'll help you out. So I take Bob's doctorate, and I turn it into you, my professor. And you read it, and you go, this is amazing. And you give me an A on my doctorate. And now I am a PhD. <laughs> Let me ask you, was that just? No. It was loving of Bob. It was merciful of Bob. I was out surfing every day. He was doing all the work. It was kind of Bob. It was long-suffering of gracious, all the attributes of, that I love about Jesus, of Bob. It was. But was it just of Bob? No. It was unjust. And may I present to you, that is exactly what happens on our life. I deserve the F on my life. Jesus deserves the A. And Jesus gives me his term paper, if you will, and I get an A on my life. How in the world is that just? It's loving of God. It's kind of God. It's merciful of God. But let me ask you, is that just of God? No, that is not just. It's very unjust, as a matter of fact. Except, and here's where we see the depth of God's plan of salvation. The question then comes, How many of you chose to have a sin nature? What age were you when you said, you know what? I would like to be a sinner, please. How many of you chose to be a, be a sinner? None of us. We didn't choose it. We were born in sin. Uh, I, I have four children, and now I have two grandchildren and one more. And about on Christmas Day, the day due day is... Uh, can't wait. Uh, but here's what I know. All of my kids, I never had to teach them this word. Listen, Ryan. Listen, Jordan. Listen, Mariah. Listen, Nathan. Say this word. Mine. Mine. <laughs> never happened. They all learned that word perfectly fine. You know what word I did have to teach them? Listen. Say Share. <laughs> share. Be nice. They did have to learn those words, and so did you and I. How does that happen? Here's how. They inherited a what? Sin nature. Sin nature. And who they inherit it from? My kids. Who they inherit it from? 
from me. How dare you? Yeah. From me and Lisa, by the way. Let me get her in on this. And so we got this problem. Jesus, how are you going to give me the A on your life? And God, before the universe was formed, before the world was created, he planned this through. And he allowed you to inherit your sin nature through Adam so that you might then inherit a perfectly righteous nature through the second Adam, Jesus. And now it is not unjust for God to allow you to inherit a righteous nature as long as you inherit it from a man. Because you inherited a sin nature from a man. Do you understand? So in the incarnation, God, Jesus could have just appeared and not ever become a man and just said, I absolve you of all sin, but he would have been unjust. And so Jesus had to become a man. And to that end, Jesus had to become a baby. And he became a baby and he had to live a life as a regular man. God had to go to elementary school. God, the creator of the universe, had to go to grammar school. God had to wear a diaper. God had to submit to his mother and father. God had to endure all the things that are in this world so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. So that God could be just. And on the cross, he had to live a full regular life as a human before he could ever qualify to go to the cross so that he could be the second Adam so that God could be just in allowing you to inherit righteousness as a free gift, just as you inherited sin as a free gift. The amazing plan of salvation, is it not? Staggering. Therefore, Romans would tell us that Jesus then, and this is a direct verbatim quote, that Jesus then is both just and the justifier of those who have faith. And on the cross, mercy, grace, forgiveness, kindness, all the wonderful attributes that we love about God, and justice on the cross, justice and mercy kissed and became one. And mercy does not rob justice, and justice does not rob mercy. The amazing plan of God's salvation. And for this reason, uh, God could not be just if he just pardoned sin, so God became a man to take the punishment of man's sin upon himself. And that is the amazing, amazing story of Christmas. God became a baby, lived his life as a regular life, and went to a cross. In Isaiah 9, we learn how the Messiah, how God would come. He would come as a baby. Isaiah 9, 6, right? Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Oh, really? Well, who will that son be? He will be the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And every human, every Jew scholar just went, how could that be? How could that be? In Isaiah 7, we learn, for the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, Isaiah 7, 14. And so Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9 tell us how God will become a man. He'll become a baby, and it's mind-boggling. Isaiah 53 then would tell us why God became a man. Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, how God would become a man. 
Isaiah 53, why God became a man. And Isaiah 53 on your screens, take a look. Let me hear you read this. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. Pause there. The reason he became a man is because God must must punish all sin or he is not what? Just. And so he punished all sin upon him. And every sin that was ever committed by every human will be punished. You just have a choice. It can be punished on Jesus or you can take the full wrath of God yourself. The choice is yours. Verse 6, read with me. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Amazingly powerful. Now you know why Christmas is merry. God became a man to take the punishment of our sin. Now, if Jesus is really God, we cannot just like him. If Jesus is really God, if he is the mighty God, the everlasting father that Isaiah prophesied that he would be, we cannot just like him like the world does. I'm celebrating Christmas. Oh, are you you a follower? of? No, no. I mean, I like Jesus. He's a good guy. Well, is he the Lord of your life? No, I'm not one of those born again. I mean, I want you to know there's no other kind, by the way. <laughs> You're either a born again slave of Jesus Christ or you don't belong to him. There is nothing else. But the world goes, no, 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 no. I'm not one of those born again type. I mean, I like Jesus. I mean, he's a good teacher, you know, brought good, good, good moral values. He's a good guy. I like Jesus. Uh, Good humanitarian, I want you to know, in the Bible, when people actually saw who Jesus was, when they actually understood what he was saying, for Jesus would say things like, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, then you've seen the Father. If you know what I like, you know what God likes. Before Abraham was, I am. He quoted from Daniel, and he said, You will see me coming in the glory of the heavens with all the angels with me, and I will bring judgment on the earth. And he said that to the Sanhedrin, claiming himself to be the radiant glory of God who's going to come and bring judgment on the earth. When the Sanhedrin heard that, that is what led to his crucifixion. When you understood who Jesus said he was, once people realized that, they were either scared of him Or they were furious with him. Or they bowed down before him and worshipped him as God. But no one simply liked him. And if this baby was born, that was born at Christmas, is God. Then we must serve him completely as Lord. We cannot simply like him. And this is what Christmas is all about. We cannot say Jesus was just a good person. A person who claims to be God is not a good person. A person who claims, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and unless you come through me, you will never see God, is not a good person unless they're God. And so in the words of C.S. Lewis, We must decide who this Jesus is. He is either a madman, a lunatic, who should be dismissed, 
or he is God in the flesh, our Savior, our Lord, who we should fall on our face and worship him. But to say that we just like him is not an option. He did not give us that option, nor did he intend to, C.S. Lewis would say. And so may we be wise as we enter into the Christmas season. If God really became a human, if Jesus really did live, suffer, and die for your sin to give you eternal life, then I want you to know that everything Jesus said and everything that is in the Bible about how we are to live and how we are to act now makes sense. And we would be very wise to make Jesus the Lord of our life. If you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life today, if you've been treating him as, yeah, I think he's a good guy. I pray that this message is ripping your heart apart. And I pray that it is bringing you to repentance because your eternity depends on it. After the service, I want you to take a moment and come forward and seek prayer and ask for the Lord uh, uh, to make the Lord the Lord of your life, Jesus the Lord of your life. <clears throat> I want to finish our time together today uh, by looking at this question. If Jesus really is God, if he is the almighty God who became a baby, which is just beyond comprehension, if Jesus really is God, well, then who can approach him? How are we to come to him? Can we even come to him? And what is our relationship with him to be like? Who can approach King Jesus, this mighty God who did all this for us? Who can approach him? Kings? People like Elon Musk who are brilliant and have attained incredible power and wealth? Who can approach Jesus? Religious gurus? Like Gandhi? Who can approach Jesus? Well, Jesus' genealogy and his birth reveal how far God condescended and stooped to be approachable by all. And so I want to look at Matthew chapter 1 with you. You put a bookmark in there, I believe. Uh, are you there? Matthew chapter 1? Matthew, by the way, a Jewish man who quit believing in God. He abandoned Judaism and he became a tax collector for Rome. He betrayed his own people. He had had enough of the religion. And there one day in his tax collector's office, Jesus, God in the flesh, the God man, came walking by and said, Matthew, follow me. And Matthew left all his wealth, his position, and followed Jesus. Matthew had some pretty rowdy friends. They were tax collectors also. Modern day equivalent? Well, they had Jack Daniels and a line of Coke on the table. And Matthew come to, came to his buddies and said, I've met, a, I've met the Messiah. And I'm having a party for him in my house tonight. I want you to come. And so they come. And they probably brought their bottle of Jack and whatever else they had. And they sat and they dined with Jesus. And their lives were transformed. And the religious leaders were looking at Jesus and they were saying, who is this guy? Look, at he's with a tax collector and with all kinds of sinners. And Jesus would say, those who are well don't need a physician. Those who are sick, hurting and dying, they need a physician. I'm the great physician and I've come to bring the dead to life. And so Matthew then would write this book uh, to let people know about this Jesus. And here's how he starts his book. Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus. 
Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is the title, the Messiah, God among us, the anointed one. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and on and on it goes. And I want to stop you for a moment and just say, why in the world is the genealogy so important? Why does Matthew choose to start his book with the genealogy of all things? Well, here's why. Because God had made some promises. In 2091 BC, God promised a man named Abraham that the Messiah would come through his lineage in Genesis chapter 12. Before this part, uh, before 2091 BC, in the Garden of Eden, God had promised mankind that the Messiah would come through mankind's lineage. But now in 2091 BC, God narrows it and he tells a man named Abraham, Abraham, the Messiah is going to come through you. That's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It was then uh, over a thousand years later, around 977 BC, that God then narrowed it further. He said, hey, not only is it going to come through Abraham, but he appeared to a man named David, King David, and he said, David, the Messiah is going to come through your lineage. And he is going to rule and reign on a throne of Israel forever. And so we see that a genealogy is important because God made promises. And the genealogy is important because God keeps his promises. And so Matthew chooses to start his book with this genealogy to show that God keeps his promises. By the way, the Jews for millennia kept detailed genealogies, something that God just supernaturally did among them. Each tribe kept detailed genealogies. We have archaeological evidence of this. Tons of Jewish genealogies. And the Jews just kept impeccable genealogies. And then something very strange happened. Suddenly, all at once, the genealogies just stopped. Do you know when that was? 70 AD. At the dysphoria. The genealogies just stopped. Do you know why? Because God quit inspiring them to keep genealogies. Do you know why? Because the genealogies have now served their purpose. The Messiah had already come. Just another mute testimony of the sovereignty and the power of God. These genealogies, by the way, played a significant role in your socioeconomic status. Uh, in all civilizations, there's somewhat of a caste system. Uh, you don't have to just be an India to have somewhat of a caste system. We do even today among us. There's some who live in Rancho Santa Fe, and there's some who live in National City. Uh, and there's somewhat of a caste system. And your genealogy then uh, was very important to your socioeconomic status. It was like your resume, if you will. And uh, people commonly tweak their genealogies to advance their socioeconomic status. If you had a weird Uncle Phil, uh, you would kind of write off weird Uncle Phil out of your genealogy. I'm not putting that fruit loop in my genealogy. And you take him off. King Herod, by the way, was uh, known. He, he altered his genealogy quite a bit to propel himself into royalty. But Jesus' genealogy does the exact opposite. As a matter of fact, Jesus' genealogy is chock full of sinners, misfits, and weirdos. <laughs> Apparently, Jesus wasn't too worried about his career. And uh, Jesus did something interesting. Look how many misfits are in this genealogy. And again, it's to the question of who can come to Jesus. Uh, look at these misfits, weirdos, sinners that are in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, verse 2. Uh, all this time, we've covered one verse. Uh, amazing. Uh, verse 2. Abraham begot Isaac. And Isaac begot, circle it, what is it? 
Jacob. And we studied Jacob for a long time, didn't we? His name means swindler, heel catcher, deceiver. And he was a deceiver. He lied to his own dad for selfish gain. And he deceived his own brother for selfish gain. And he deceived his employer for selfish gain. And he was always scamming. And God chose to put him in his lineage. Changed his name to Israel. And Jacob begot Judah and 11 other brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Judah, verse 3, begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Circle Tamar. Do you know who Tamar is? Tamar was married to Judah's oldest son, Ur. Everybody go, Ur. Yeah, that's who she was married to. And Ur died. And so in Jewish tradition, so that the woman would be able to have a livelihood and have an inheritance, the next son would then marry the, his brother's wife and become her husband. And the next son was Onan. And so Onan marries Tamar. And after a short little uh, time of marriage, guess who else dies? Onan dies. Now, Ur and Onan die as, wife, as husbands of Tamar. And Judah's looking at Tamar like, what are you feeding my boys? What the heck, right? And Judah had a, another son, and his name was Selah, excuse me, Shelah. And uh, he wasn't old enough to get married yet. So Tamar puts on widow's garments. And she goes back to her mother's house in her widow's garments every single day of her life waiting for Shelah to grow up. Shelah grows up, and Judah says, she makes bad meatloaf, man. I'm not sending her, my, my son to her house. He's killed two of my boys already. And so Tamar sees that Shelah's grown up, and, and he's not being given to her as a wife, as a husband. And uh, so uh, Tamar's a widow, and she's brokenhearted. And one day Judah, uh, his wife, dies. And now Judah doesn't have a wife. And a little bit of time would go on, and it was time to shear the sheep. And they would shear the sheep at Timnah. And so Judah goes down to Timnah to shear his sheep. And Tamar hears that Judah is going down to Timnah to shear the sheep. And she dresses up, takes off her widow's garments. And she dresses like a harlot. She goes and stands at the gate of Timnah. And Judah comes in, a lonely man who's lost his wife, and he sees Tamar dressed as a harlot there at Timnah, and Judah goes into her. She veils herself. He doesn't know it's his daughter-in-law, and she gets pregnant, and she has a child. Judah finds out that she had a child out of wedlock. And Judah says she deserves the death penalty. And Tamar comes to him and says, it's your child. And Judah goes, I am such a self-righteous hypocrite. Lord, forgive me. And this is the mess that's in Jesus's genealogy. Who can approach Jesus? Verse 3, Judah begot Perez, Zerah by Tamar, Perez begat Hezron, Hezron begat Ram, Ram begat Aminadab, Aminadab begat Nashon, Nashon begat Salmon, Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. Circle Rahab. What do we know about Rahab? Well, she lived in the land of Jericho, and she had a red light on her house. She was a prostitute. And Israel came in with 12 spies to spy out Jericho because God was going to judge Jericho and give it to Israel. And Rahab hears from these spies what God is doing. And she says, I've heard about your God. I've heard what he did at the Red Sea to Egypt. I've heard that your God is the true and living God. 
I want to know your God. And she hid the spies in her house. And by her faith, God said, she's my daughter. And she's in the lineage of Jesus. And Rahab begat Boaz by Obed. And Ruth, Ruth, uh, there's another gal. And she's another Gentile. She's a Moabite. And she begot Jesse. We don't have time to talk about Ruth. Uh, great story, though. Uh, and she begot Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. And David the king begot Solomon. By her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who was that? Bathsheba. I want you to know, this isn't a slight on Bathsheba. Matthew is pointing out, not Bathsheba's problem, Matthew is pointing out whose problem? David's problem. You see, Uriah was one of David's best friends. David was the anointed king of Israel, but God hadn't brought him to the throne yet. Saul was the king, and he was trying to kill David. And for 22 years, David had to run as a fugitive in the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, God did something interesting. God brought all the misfits of Israel to come to David, and David discipled them. Uriah was one of those men. Disgruntled with the world, he came to David. And David began to disciple him and teach him the ways of the Lord. Uriah and David became incredibly close friends. And when David became king, David made Uriah, one of his great friends, the general of his entire Israeli army. But David had the hots for his good-looking wife. And while Uriah was off in battle, and David was bathing and relaxing and spawing in his palace, he called for Bathsheba, and he slept with her, his best friend's wife. He sent her back home, and she sends a note. David, I'm pregnant. <laughs> and David goes, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? The nation of Israel is going to hate me. I've got Uriah's wife pregnant. David didn't want to lose face, so he gave an order. Send Uriah to the front of the battle lines withdraw from him and David, David killed Uriah on the front lines of battle and then to appear like a really good king David said oh poor Bathsheba her husband was killed in battle she can come into my kingdom and I will take care of her and everybody said oh David you're such a good king you're so righteous you're so kind David and David was guilty of sin and murder. And she's in the lineage. He's in the lineage of Jesus. And Solomon begat Rehoboam. And Rehoboam was a wicked king who divided the nation Israel into two by his bad leadership. He abandoned all of God's ways. And he set up high places in the hills uh, that had male shrine homosexual prostitutes in them. And he polluted Israel completely. And he's in the lineage. And Rehoboam begot Abijah. And Abijah was the next king of Judah. He was a bad king. He had 14 wives. And on and on and on I could go, but let's jump down. Verse 15 Eliud begot Eleazar. Eleazar begot Mathon. Mathon begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ or the Messiah. Wow. In Jesus' genealogy, murderers, prostitutes, Evil rulers with 14 wives and racial outsiders are all included in the family of God. Gentiles, 
uh, Canaanites, Moabites. To the Jews, these people were unclean. To the Jews, these racial outsiders were not even allowed to go into the temple to worship God. And yet these outcasts are included in Jesus' family tree. They're not omitted. They're not redacted from his genealogy. They're included in Jesus' genealogy to show us that it is the sinful, it is the outcast, it is the broken that God came into this world to save. And you could be a wicked king, a sinful king, or you can be a sinful prostitute, or you can be a sinful homeless man, or you can be a sinful doctor. It doesn't matter. Sinful mom and dad. doesn't matter. We're all sinful. Uh, If you come to Jesus, you're included in his lineage. Jesus even included five women in his genealogy, three of them that were pagan. Uh, And this may not strike us as unusual, but in those days, in those societies, women were virtually never named in a genealogy, let alone five of them, let alone Gentiles. And yet Jesus included them in his because they're valued and important. So if Jesus is God, who can approach him? Well, there it is. All repentant sinners, all the outcasts, all the murderers, all the prostitutes may freely come to worship him as Lord. To know him, to walk with him, to see him, to behold the miracle of God's plan of salvation laid out before the beginning of the world and put into place at a manger in Bethlehem. Merry Christmas. Interesting, by the way, we'll look at this next week. When the angels came, when they appeared in the heavens to give this majestic birth announcement, these angels who were appointed before the earth was created, hey, the Messiah is going to come, and when he does, you get to announce them. These angels that came in the heavens for this majestic birth announcement, who did they come and give the message to? Shepherds, shepherds who were despised and considered dirty and filthy by society, shepherds who were so despised, their testimony wasn't even admissible in a court. This birth announcement did not come to the PhDs, did not come to the to the religious elite, did not come to the kings of the earth. This announcement came to shepherds so that Jesus would show us that all of us can approach God. Just amazing. We must understand Jesus didn't come to make this world a better place. He's coming the second time to do that. He came the first time to die on a cross for our sins so that all who come to him in repentance can be saved from God's judgment and have eternal life with God. But before Jesus could do that, he had to be born in a manger. He had to be born as our redeemer. He had to live a regular life, a human life like you and me. And this is why God had to become a baby. And if God himself really did come down to be born in a manger, then we have something that no other religion even claims to have. We have a God who truly understands us from the inside of our experience. We have a God who truly understands what it means to be human. And no other religion says that God became a baby, suffered as a human, attended grammar school, was mocked and ridiculed, had to be courageous, had family problems, had a father who died at a young age in his life, had to get a job and provide for his family and lacked money, was abused and misunderstood. We have a God who truly understands us from the inside of our experience. And this God went on to be mocked, to be beaten, to be spat upon, to be whipped, to be scourged, to be tortured, and to take a suffering of death that is just inexcrucible and uh, impossible to fathom. 
He was even forsaken by God. Because we have a God who truly understands us from the inside of our own experience. And Christmas shows us that God knows what you're going through. And that when you talk to him, he understands. And when you call upon him, he'll know your voice and he'll answer you. Christmas is about our need to be saved from our sins. And Christmas is about Jesus' eagerness to do it. May it fill our hearts with awe and wonder to the praise and glory of God. Amen? Amen. I want to leave you with one last verse. Why don't you stand with me and let's read this together. This is Hebrews 4. Let me hear you read this in a thundering voice. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was on all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Look at that. He, go back, please. He passed through the heavens, and he sat down at the right hand of God. And he can sympathize with our weakness because he himself experienced it. Let us go on the rest of the verse. Let us therefore come boldly to a throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christmas is all about us needing to be saved from eternal judgment. And Christmas is all about Jesus's great eager desire to do that for us. If you'd like to make Jesus the Lord of your life, I want to encourage you, don't walk out those doors. Come forward and ask for prayer. We'll pray with you, and today will be a day where you will be born again. May the Lord bless you. May he cause his face to shine upon you. And may you walk in his light, for you are loved by God and born into his family. Merry Christmas. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.